Matthew chapter 1, and beginning in verse 1. And ladies and gentlemen, this is the Word of God. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Ebed, Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. Look down with me to verse 16. And Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. We would ask that you would write its truths on our hearts, give life to the dead, open up the eyes of the blind. May we see you and see you clearly, Lord. Pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. I brought this out before, but this is an amazing start to the New Testament. It doesn't seem that way because it's a genealogy, and many times we rush through the reading of the genealogy. We've got some hard names to read oftentimes when we do. But I remember being in a service where a man from India was giving his testimony, and he had flown to the United States, I believe, if I remember the story correctly, and it was in a hotel room, And the Gideons had left a New Testament in one of the drawers, and he picked it up and read it, and read Matthew 1. And the words he read stunned him, stunned him into silence. And his testimony was that I was hearing, I had never heard anyone give a testimony like this, I was converted through the genealogy of Matthew 1. I had never heard such a thing in my life. But he said, you need to understand, I come from India. And in India, we have many, many gurus, many gods, millions of gods. And the guru could simply come from nowhere, from the next village or five villages away. And there's no historical data to understand where he came from. But here is the claim that this one could trace his genealogy back hundreds and thousands of years to prove he was the Messiah, the King. And I was converted on the floor of a hotel room just reading Matthew 1. What a stunning start. Now we as Westerners look at Matthew 1 and say, let's read through the genealogy and then get to the good part. But for him, it was the most stunning thing imaginable. Here was someone who could prove he was the Messiah. Look at verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 22. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. 
As we read Matthew 2 now, the next chapter, look at verse 4. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them, that's Herod did, where the Christ was to be born. Just to interject here, the word Christ, the name Christ, is a title. It's not a last name. And the word Christ comes from the Greek word Christos, and it is the Greek way of speaking about the Hebrew word Mashiach, which we translate into English as Messiah. And so the name Christ was not given to Jesus because that was Mary and Joseph's last name. Jesus wasn't born to Joseph and Mary Christ. But it's a title, Jesus Christ. When we say Jesus Christ, we're saying Jesus is the Messiah. Continuing on, he was continuing to ask uh, where the Christ, the Messiah, was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least amongst the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Everybody knew that the Messiah was to be born in a little town called Bethlehem. Not Seattle, Washington, not Jerusalem, not Paris, France, not anywhere else, a little town called Bethlehem. What I'd like us to do is go to a number of scriptures today, and to help us in this, I'm going to move left to right, so we'll always be going right, uh, at least at the beginning of all this. Let's go to the Gospel of Luke on from Matthew through to Mark and then to Luke. If you go to chapter 24, Jesus had risen from the dead, but the disciples hadn't yet understood all that was going to be explained to them. And there were two on the road to Emmaus who were in severe depression over what had taken place in Jerusalem. The Christ, the Messiah, had died and they thought all their hopes were now to be abandoned. And Jesus rebukes them and calls them back to the Scriptures. Luke chapter 24, beginning in verse 24, they were describing the situation. Jesus was acting as if he didn't understand what was going on. What, what things have been going on that makes you depressed? Well, they were now explaining. And now they're talking of the talk of resurrection. Look at verse 24. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he, that's Jesus, said to them, O oh, foolish ones, he's speaking to the two now, O oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary? Now this is a question. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? It's a question that we know the answer is. The right answer is yes. Verse 27, and beginning with Moses, that's the first five books of the Bible, and all the prophets, that's a way of talking about the rest of the Bible, the Old Testament, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So what we would do, I'd have loved to have been part of that conversation if there was a good translator, 
to hear it all and to hear how Jesus said, here I am in Genesis, here I am in Exodus, here I am in Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, here I am, here I am, here I am. I'm revealing myself in the scriptures. And over and over on that journey for a number of hours, what a Bible study they would have had. What a Bible study. Look at verse 44. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, which is the way of talking about the entire Old Covenant as we refer to it, everything written about me in all the Bible, in the law of the prophets, law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, must be fulfilled. Verse 45, Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ, the Messiah, should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. Don't miss what is being said here. He's saying that the sufferings of the Messiah are outlined in the Old Testament, as well as the fact he would rise again from the dead. Stories told of a young man who, in a particular university here in the United States, had big dreams. The university said, dream big, and he dreamt big. And he went into the study of the professor of religion, who happened to be a Christian, and uh, said, look, I've, I've got this big dream. And the professor said, so what's the dream? He says, I want to start my own religion. I've seen some of them around, and I think I can come up with a better one, and I can get a good following, especially in California. And um, he then asked, though, what do I do? What, what should I do? To, if, if, you know, I want to dream big. How would I start my own religion? And the professor said, well, what you need to do is get people to talk about you thousands of years before you are here and write it down. Um, what you need to do is to be born of a virgin and live this glorious, sin-free life and then go to a cross and die the excruciating, the excruciating agony of the cross and rise again from the dead. And I tell you what, that'll be a good start. By this time, the young student in his 20s had vacated the room. He knew that was not on the table. What we read in our Bibles is staggering. It's stunning. And if we haven't yet grasped it, I'm hoping we can grasp it today. As we go on in our Bibles from Luke to the book of Acts, uh, the book of Acts after the Gospel of John, the theme of Jesus being the Messiah was the apostolic preaching. It's what the apostles preached. Peter preaches in Acts chapter 3. We read of it here. I'm just going to center in on one verse for the sake of time. And this is Peter in Solomon's portico. And he said this. He preached this. Acts chapter 3 verse 18. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer he thus fulfilled. So he was preaching the Messiah and the sufferings of the Messiah and saying, this was in the mouth of all the prophets. This was not something that just happened and we're trying to make good on it. 
like the eggs, the eggs have been broken and we might as well make scrambled eggs. You know, this is the best we can do. God's had his dreams cut short by the death of the Messiah, but there's still some great things we can get out of it. No, this was planned from all eternity. As we read our Bible, it tells us that the Lamb was slain before the foundation of the world. It was in the agreement, the covenant of redemption between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit before there ever was a world that the Christ would come into the world, the second person of the Trinity would enter into human flesh and be born of a virgin, live a sinless life, die on the cross, be raised from the dead, and save all God's people forever. That was the plan. And it was all on place. It was all on course. It was happening and had happened according to God's intention. That's Acts chapter 3. Let's look at chapter 5. Acts chapter 5, verse 42. And every day in the temple and from house to house, the early church, I believe like the church of our day, meets corporately and in smaller groups and see that's what's taking place here. It's also another verse, if you ever want to reference this, it is uh, Acts chapter 20, verse 20. I call it having 2020 vision. That's how I remember it. But every day in the temple and from house to house, this was their, this was the material. This was what they preached. They did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. That Jesus is the Messiah. The Messiah, who is he? Jesus. That was their message. Jesus is the Messiah. Well, let's go to see Paul in action. Acts chapter 17. On to the right again, Acts chapter 17. Verse 1. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. This is Paul and Silas. And Paul went in, as was his custom. Let me just stop for a moment. This is what he did not just once, but over and over and over again. This is what he did. He went in, where? To the synagogue of the Jews, as was his custom. And on three Sabbath days, why would he do it then? Because that's when they showed up. He reasoned with them from the Scriptures. Not from his experience. Not from the fact that he had encountered the risen Christ, although I'm sure he referred to it. What a testimony he had, an amazing testimony, a persecutor of the church, now an apostle, that has weight, but that's not his emphasis. His emphasis was in the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. How did he explain and prove? From the scriptures, and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. The authority for his proclamation was not that he had an experience, but that he had been able, and they could, they are able, read the scriptures. That's the authority. And of course, the New Testament was not yet written, so it's a reference at this point in history to the scriptures of what we call the Old Testament, the Old Covenant. Go to Acts chapter 18, next chapter, verse 5. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the Word. Occupied with the Word. Testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. That takes some boldness. 
walking in and saying, the one you're waiting for has come. The promised Messiah is Jesus Christ. Jesus is the Messiah. Go on to the right to Romans chapter 1. Now Paul is not preaching at this point. He's writing to the church at Rome. Paul, a slave, a servant of Christ Jesus. Stop there for a moment. Right there. What amazing words. Paul never would expect he'd be writing to the church a friendly letter. And he's a slave of the Messiah Jesus. Right from the off. Not, we'll get to this in lesson number 30 or page 28 of this thing. I'm going to get there eventually. No, right from the off. Here's the message. I'm Paul. I'm a slave of the Messiah Jesus. Called to be an apostle. Set apart for the gospel of God. God's gospel. Which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. So, the Messiah Jesus, the gospel of God, promised beforehand through the Old Testament Scriptures. What is the gospel? Well, it concerns his son. Verse 3. Who was descended from David. That's his heritage according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness. That's the Jewish way of referring to the Holy Spirit. So Paul, being a Jew, wrote that way. How was he declared to be the Son of God? Did God write it in the sky on clouds? No. He declared Jesus to be the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. It was a vindication of all that Jesus was and is and said. It's as if God says, I'm proving he was who he said he is. He is who he said he is by raising him from the dead. Look at this. Jesus the Messiah. Jesus Christ our Lord. I once was watching religious television in England and only once did I ever hear a clear proclamation of the gospel. There were so many complaints that I think it was the one and last time in my generation I ever saw it. They uh, actually covered a Billy Graham crusade. But I remember watching a religious program where a bishop who talks with an elite high accent, and this made me mad, it still makes me mad, help me Jesus, help me Jesus, but he, he went on the television as a bishop in the Church of England and said, I wouldn't want to say that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus Christ is the Messiah. There are others that have a very different view in our world. I thought, I don't want to tell you what I thought. <laughs> You're a betrayer. What a contradiction. I don't believe I can say Jesus Christ is the Messiah. If you understood the name and title Christ, I don't believe that Jesus the Messiah is the Messiah. You've given away the farm, the land, the country, the sea, everything. You've given everything away. If Jesus isn't the Messiah, get out of the ministry. You've got nothing to say to anyone. You don't believe the first verse of the New Testament. Moving right along. First Corinthians chapter 15. 
Again, on to the right. Next book, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul again writes, Verse 1, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you. Understanding this, the nature of true saving faith is that which endures. The faith that fizzles was flawed from the start. It's a good saying, it's true. And so we have true faith if we continue in the faith. It's not that we are saved by our works and our continued works. But if we have true faith, and justification is by faith alone, the nature of the faith that God gives is an enduring look and trust in Jesus Christ. And so you're saved if you hold fast to the word I preached. Unless you believed in vain. Unless you had some kind of other kind of faith. A failing faith, a not real deal faith. Look at verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. There are some doctrines that are more important than others. Some are secondary. They're important. Everything in the Bible is important. But some are important enough and vital enough that if you don't believe them, you'll die in your sins. That's according to Jesus. In John chapter 8, he said, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. He did not say that about your view of the end times, your view of baptism for infants or for adults only. He said, but get this right, you must believe I'm the I am or else you're going to die in your sins. And so here again, Paul is discussing a doctrine that is of first importance. It's right there up as so important, it's first. I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. What is of first importance? That Christ, let's translate it, Messiah, died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. That He was buried. That He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. The, uh, the, the word here means this, that they're still around if you want to go ask them. Though some have fallen asleep, some, some have died by now. Then he appeared to James and to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he also appeared to me. But notice his first importance, gospel, Doctrine is based not on an experience, but the appeal is made to the Scriptures. In accordance with the Scriptures, the Messiah died for our sins. In accordance with the Scriptures, He was buried. In accordance with the Scriptures, He was raised. The third day. And the Scriptures He's referring to are the Scriptures of the Old Testament. There were around 40 false messiahs in Jewish history... Bar Kokhba was one, Sabbatai Sveh was another, but all in all you can count about 40 in history who said that they were Messiah. Now hear this, none of them could appeal to prophecy. Why? They couldn't. There are over 300, one man and a number of men have come up with 333 prophecies of Messiah in the Old Testament, written over a period of around a thousand years. 
Now, the Old Testament was completed around 400, maybe even 500 years BC. Keep that in mind. 500 years before the time of Christ, the, the Messiah, the Old Testament was completed. We can prove at least this, that it was at least 250 years because the Greek Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures, was uh, documented to be started around 250 BC. So we know it's at least 250, but most scholars say between 400 and 500 years before Christ, the Old Testament was completed. So it's not as if Jesus did certain things and someone was, hey, write that down. Call yourself Malachi and put it in the Bible somewhere. If you have the notes that I handed out earlier, I'd like to read a couple of paragraphs. Around 80% of the Bible's predictions have already been fulfilled. 80%. That doesn't mean that the Bible's only 80% accurate. Far from it, in fact. I venture to say that the Bible is 100% accurate and will be proven to be so as time transpires. The remaining 20% of Bible prophecy are yet to be realized simply because they relate to events immediately before, during, and after the second coming of Messiah, which hasn't happened yet, but will happen. As Christians, we believe our Savior's name is the Lord Jesus Christ. And then, if you go to the third paragraph... Through what we call messianic prophecies, these are prophecies relating to the Messiah to come, God provided a sure and certain way to recognize Messiah when he came. These are events written in the Bible hundreds and even thousands of years before they take place in time. Think about that. Ponder it. Only God could reveal such amazing detail to his prophets millennia in advance of the historical events. Look at this. God had declared that his Messiah would be a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Judah and a son of David. God had also said the Messiah would be born a virgin in the surroundings of poverty in Bethlehem, city of David. He'd be preceded by a herald, that was John the Baptist, be seen riding on a donkey and would present himself 483 years after the decree was made to rebuild Jerusalem after the Babylonian captivity. I just want to say, it's kind of specific. He'd be a prophet, a priest, and a king, but there's more. He'd be legally tried and condemned to death and would suffer and die. That's what the Old Testament said. By means of the piercing of his hands and feet. His death would be substitutionary. In other words, in the place of others. He'd be buried in a rich man's tomb and he'd be resurrected from the dead. It's stunning. I told you it's stunning. Amazingly, more than 30 prophecies were fulfilled in just one day. You guessed it. The day the Lord Jesus Christ died. That, that day, is the most significant day in history. There's 30 scriptures for you. Enjoy. If you go to the second page, like us to go in our Bibles to Psalm 22. We're going back now to the Old Testament. Psalm 22. First words we read are these. 
My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Stop there for a moment. On the cross, with very little in the way of lung power when you're crucified, not that it's happened to me, but I'm told, you're not able to talk very much. It's everything you can do in that position to speak. And on the cross, if you remember, in Matthew 27, verse 46, Jesus cried out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why is that significant? Well, the book of Psalms was the song book of the people of Israel. Everybody knew the Psalms. And so it's as if in our day someone said, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. And without recalling everything of the Amazing Grace hymn, you know that he is referring to Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me, and we could quote the rest of it, but he doesn't need to do that because Amazing Grace locates the hymn totally just by the opening stanza. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound. Many non-Christians know where to go after that to complete the first verse. It's such a famous thing. So this was in Israel, Psalm 22. And on the cross, when he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's announcing to everybody, I am fulfilling Psalm 22. That's what's going on. I don't need to quote the whole psalm. You know it. You read through this and you are beneath the cross. Things that happened in the life of the Messiah. It's called a messianic psalm. It's a psalm about the Messiah to come that expresses things that never happened to David. David didn't write these words saying, well, that happened to me. He couldn't say, verse 18, they divide my garments among them. For my clothing they cast lots. That never happened in the life of David. But David was writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he was writing about things that would happen not in David's life, but in the Messiah's life. And get a clue. This was written about 1,000 years B.C. That's when David lived. You'd have to be writing it in your lifetime, right? And David lived 1,000 years B.C. Just go through the list. Psalm 22.1 cries out to God. Psalm 22.8, there's a challenge for God to save him. That's what people said on the, beneath the cross. Look at this. Verse 8, he trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. That's exactly what was said. Matthew 27.43, beneath the cross. Matthew 22, excuse me, Psalm 22, verse 14. I'm poured out like water, all my bones are out of joint, my heart is like wax, it's melted within my breast. Verse 16, for dogs have encompassed me. This is speaking of Gentile nations. It was the Romans who put him on the cross. A company of evildoers encircles me, they've pierced my hands and feet. Never happened to David. On and on we could go. 
They stare at Jesus on the cross. They gamble for his clothes. He's declared faultless. He's spat on and mocked as we read Isaiah. But just focus here on Psalm 22 before we get ahead of ourselves. Skeptics say, well, Jesus was checking off a list. Oh, the Messiah is thirsty. I'm going to say I'm thirsty. Okay, I'll give you that one. But how can you on the cross control people down below the cross to make sure they cast lots for your garments? Try that. He was not in control of the situation, except he always was in control of the situation. It's fathomless what we read. They divided my garments among them for my clothing. They cast lots. Go to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah. On to the right. Isaiah. And I'm not going to read the entire passage. I wish we had time to do that. I've done that in other ways and other recordings are available, but grasp the magnitude of what we read. In fact, Isaiah was written around 700 years BC, and you cannot find a better text to explain the cross in all of our Bibles than this passage, and it's written 700 years BC. It's staggering. What you have in your Bible is staggering. Your Bible is the Word of God, ladies and gentlemen. Just go through the list. Uh, Isaiah 52, verse 14, which is the beginning of the passage, really. A broken man, yet a king. He bears our sins and sicknesses. He opened not his mouth. He's the Lamb of God. He died not for himself, but for his people. He's laid in a rich man's tomb. He's numbered with the transgressors. He prays for his killers. And he actually rises from the dead. Look at this. Verse 8. Well, it's just so good. We've got to go to verse 4. Surely he's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. We thought God was afflicting him for his sins. But no, this was a vicarious sacrifice on behalf of others, a substitutionary atonement taking place. It wasn't his sins. He committed no sins. But he was pierced. Interesting word, isn't it? Verse 5, he was pierced for our transgressions. Not his, he had none. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living. That's the prophetic statement about the death of Christ. Cut off, out of the land of the living. If you're out of the land of the living, you are dead. Why was he cut off? Stricken for the transgression of my people, God's people. And they made his grave. Now this is now talking about his burial. We've had the death, now the burial. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence, there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. 
When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. That's the sons and daughters of Abraham. He shall prolong his days. That's the resurrection. He's dead, but he lives again. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. There's so much more here, but we must move on. It was the year 1985, as I recall, that I was at seminary and uh, visited as a guest speaker was a man by the name of Josh McDowell. Many of you know of his ministry. And I'd read some of his material, but it was a joy that he came to our seminary. I remember him talking, maybe perhaps not on that event, but at other times I've heard him speak of the death of Christ and the prophecies of the Old Testament being fulfilled. It was a long time ago. He's still saying it because it's still true. And he started out as someone who was militantly against the idea of Jesus being the Messiah, of the Bible being true. And he certainly didn't believe that people rose from the dead, but he became a Christian based on the evidence and wrote a best-selling book called Evidence That Demands a Verdict. I recommend it. If I would summarize something that Josh McDowell brought forth, it was regarding the promises of the Old Testament regarding the Messiah. Firstly, he'd be the seed of the woman. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, which is an unusual expression, because normally you would say the seed of a man, but it really reveals what we now know as the virgin birth. Not too many people have that on their resume. So he's the seed of the woman. And then as you go through the book of Genesis, you find that there are three sons born to Noah. And everyone here and everyone on the planet, all eight billion, can be traced back to the three sons of Noah. And of the three sons of Noah, the Messiah was going to come through only one of the sons. So immediately two-thirds of the world population there was eliminated. And the Messiah would come through Shem. That's a lot. So two-thirds eliminated. Then we come to the next promise that he would be the descendant of Abraham. Abraham had eight children, two by Sarah. And God eliminates seven-eighths of the descendants of Abraham by saying it's the descendant of Isaac who would be the Messiah. Do you see what's happening? We've we're, we're, we're reducing the number of possible messiahs very, very quickly. Seed of the woman, virgin birth, line of Shem, descendant of Abraham, and then more, descendant of Isaac. Isaac had then two children, Jacob and Esau, and God eliminates 50% of the line of Isaac by saying it's the line of Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons, out of which the 12 tribes of Israel came. And God eliminates 11 twelfths of the tribe of Israel by saying it's the tribe of Judah that will have the Messiah. Of the tribe of Judah, then God goes further. Many lines are eliminated 
when God says it's going to be of the family of Jesse. Jesse had eight children. God eliminates seven-eighths of the line of Jesse by saying it's the house of David. What did pastor preach on? I don't know, but I remember... Think of that. And this one who is the Messiah would be crucified, hands and feet pierced. Historically, crucifixion, you can check it out. Crucifixion wasn't even invented when David penned those words, 1,000 years BC. Wasn't even invented. It would take God to reveal that. Only God. Psalm 41.9, Zechariah 11.12 tells us two things, in fact three things. This Messiah would be betrayed by a friend for 30 pieces of silver, not 28, not 32, 30, of silver, not gold. And the money would be used to buy a potter's field. And of all the towns and cities on the planet, Micah chapter 5 verse 2 says it's a small town of less than 1,000 people, Bethlehem, and there's a few Bethlehems, it's Bethlehem Ephrata. Don't get the wrong Bethlehem. So if you're taking a poll, unless you were born of a virgin, of all of these things, and you weren't born in Bethlehem. Well, I, I, I got all the others, but I was born in Paris. Sorry. Bethlehem. That's where Messiah was born. We read it. Herod inquired. Where is the Messiah to be born? Bethlehem. So, let me summarize. He'd be born the seed of a woman of the lineage of Shem, a descendant of Abraham, line of Isaac, line of Jacob, family of Jesse, house of David, crucified, betrayed by a friend for 30 pieces of silver, which was used to buy a potter's field, and born in Bethlehem, Ephrata. 330 prophecies like these. Take just eight, and this has all been done, and it's documented. Eight, not 30, eight, Let's talk about mathematical probability, and with this we'll close. Professor Peter W. Stoner was chairman of the departments of mathematics and astronomy at Pasadena City College and chairman of the science division at Westmont College. In his book, Science Speaks, so he documented it, put it in a book, Professor Stoner outlines the mathematical probability of one person in history fulfilling just eight of the most clear and straightforward messianic prophecies. Josh and Sean McDowell quote Stoner in their book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. It's an updated edition. And here's what they write. We find that the chance that any man might have lived down to the present time and fulfilled all eight prophecies is one in ten to the 17th power. That's one with... One, and then 17 zeros after it. That's to be fulfilled in one person. 
That's mathematical probability. One in every one times 10 to the 17th power. One with 17 zeros. In case you're wondering whether his math was wrong, H. Harold Hartzler, PhD of the American Scientific, Scientific Affiliation, Goshen College, writes in the foreword, uh, the foreword of Stoner's book, quote, The manuscript for Science Speaks has been carefully reviewed by a committee of the American Scientific Affiliation members and by the executive council of the same group and has been found in general to be dependable and accurate in regard to the scientific material presented. The mathematical analysis included is based on principles of probability which are thoroughly sound and Professor Stoner has applied these principles in a proper and convincing way. Again, an illustration I heard around 40 years ago by Josh McDowell. Take the entire state of Texas. That's a big state. That's like Europe. Imagine the entire state of Texas two feet deep in silver dollars. Imagine that. Texas, two feet deep in silver dollars. Take one silver dollar, put a red check on it. Throw it in somewhere. Somewhere in Texas. Use bulldozers and mix up the entire state. Get a thousand bulldozers and just do your thing. Then take a man, blindfold him, let him have a helicopter ride with a pilot. He's blindfolded, remember? Let him have a helicopter ride through and over Texas and at a random time he just says stop and they land somewhere on the two feet of silver dollars he gets out of the helicopter blindfolded reaches down and picks up a silver dollar of his choice the probability that in his first pick he would pick up the red check silver dollar is the same probability that only eight of these prophecies will be fulfilled in one person. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the word of God. Jesus is the Messiah. For the Christian, be encouraged. Your faith is in the right person. He's the strong one. He's mighty to save. And just as this one has come into the world, he will come again. He himself said it. For those who are not yet his, come to him now. There is no messing with him. He's the Lord of history. He's written in a book and proved he is who he said he is. What have you done with this, Jesus? Have you responded to the gospel? He's the Lord of history. He's come, lived a sinless life, died an atoning death on the cross, rose from the dead, is at the place of all authority right now in this universe and commands all to repent and believe the gospel. Have you done it? What will you do with this Jesus? The Messiah, the Lord, give him his full title, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Write it on our hearts now and forever. Be glorified in this. In Jesus' name, amen.